Well, if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, we're going to continue looking at this amazing gospel account of the true Christmas story. Now, Christmas is often associated with journeys and trips, and certainly that was the case for me growing up. Uh, We would load up uh, the kids in a station wagon. I'm the oldest of four boys. You got mom and dad. Got the little Monte Carlo station wagon. You pack it out with kids and all the suitcases and the gifts. We didn't have room for the dog, so he had to stay back. But, uh, I mean, I, I have vivid memories of this. And, like, with boys, and some of you families, you, you know what this looks like. Like, you fight for every inch of space. You know, like you're claiming it, you know, and elbows, and dad's not watching. All of a sudden, you push one of your brothers. He stays in the car, but barely. You know, you're, you're looking to make this Christmas journey. And we, we have a lot of association with traveling, visiting relatives, joyous times. Uh, sometimes it's like, oh, I've seen all the family I can handle for this year. And, but we understand Christmas journeys, right? And even the story of Christmas, we associate with a Christmas journey of Mary and Joseph. Mary, nine months pregnant, and she's making, they're making their way to uh, Bethlehem from Nazareth to the ancestral home of Joseph in Bethlehem. And we, we associate this journey with the Christmas story. But that is actually not the first journey that Mary had while carrying Jesus inside her womb. In fact, we saw it last week. The first journey that Mary makes was actually to the home of her cousin Elizabeth. And we actually have some great recollection of what that looks like here because it's recorded in Scripture. But as much as the, you see the emphasis on the physical journey that Mary takes, the great emphasis is on the spiritual journey that Mary is on. We saw this a couple weeks ago in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, when she was literally startled when the angel Gabriel comes from the presence of God and makes this announcement that you, Mary, you're about 13 or 14 years old. You are engaged to a man by the name of Joseph. You are a virgin, but you will carry the eternal Son of God. The eternal Son of God is going to enter into humanity. The Holy Spirit is going to come over, come over you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, and you will conceive in your womb this promised deliverer, this Messiah, this eternal King of David. You will actually carry him. The tremendous reality of the incarnation that the eternal Son of God enters into humanity And we have that announcement. And the first big step of Mary's journey was one of wonder. You see that even like in verse 29. She's perplexed and pondering this amazing statement. But the second major step of this spiritual journey for Mary was when she came to a place of willingness. You see it in verse 38 in chapter 1. And Mary said, Behold the bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You see this absolute willingness. God, whatever you want, whatever the cost, I see myself as your servant. May your will and your word be done. And that leads us then to the third major step of Mary's spiritual journey. We find it here as we come to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. And that is one of profound worship. Now, you may be familiar with this text, and it's referred to as the Magnificat. It comes from the word 
the Latin of, from the very beginning phrase, my soul exalts the Lord. It comes from the, the word magnify. And that's what Mary does. She magnifies God with her words and with her song. Now, uh, there's a lot of similarities to what Mary says in Luke chapter 1, verse, beginning in verse 46, to what is said in 1 Samuel chapter 2 when Hannah gives this remarkable song of praise to God. It's, it's powerful, and it's likely that Mary was thinking much about what God had done for Hannah and the amazing birth of her son, and that is because all Israel uh, knew the principal songs of Hannah, David, and Deborah. They knew them, they knew them from a very early age, and they would sing them and recite them at the feasts of Israel. And so as Mary is making this trek from Nazareth, an 80-mile trek to the hill country to visit Elizabeth, because remember, the angel Gabriel, Gabriel said, I'm going to give you this sign. This profound miracle that's going to take place within you, another miracle has already taken place because Elizabeth, your cousin, Though she be way up there in age, maybe 70, maybe even older, she was even referred to as barren, who had never had a child. She is six months pregnant. You know, if Mary visited her, there is no way that she would ever miss by just looking at Elizabeth. Indeed, she was carrying a child. And so Mary makes her way. And as she's going this three- to four-day journey, likely with a band of other travelers making it to the hill country, she is probably thinking about every aspect of that song of Hannah and seeing how God is working in her life. It's really a powerful song as we're going to take a look at it today. You're going to find that not only is there parallels to the song of Hannah, but there are actually at least 12 references to the Old Testament, showing us that at a very early age, Mary had a profound grasp of Scripture. And this wasn't unique among Israel's children, because they valued God, and because if you value God, you will value His Word And so she knew it, and she was thinking about it. Now, what we're about to read, these are dangerous words even to whisper, not alone to sing from the top of your voice or to declare it loudly. In fact, the text that we're going to look at today, the Magnificat, even in this past century, there is at least three different countries that actually at some point in the last hundred years actually prohibited the use. They banned the publication and the recitation of these words. They found them to be dangerously subversive. Uh, In India, uh, sometime during the British rule in India that ended in 1947, these words that we're about to read were banned. In Guatemala in the 1980s, the exact same thing. They were seen like, hey, no way. This song talks about putting your trust in God and we want it in government. We're not going to let you sing it. But perhaps even the most memorable of those examples is what took place in Argentina, known as the Dirty War, where over 30,000 people literally disappeared when the military dictatorship in Argentina between 1976 and 83 turned against their own people in horrific ways having mothers give birth to children, kill the moms, take the children, have them adopted by families that were supportive of the government. It's still protested even this day, although most Americans are, I guess, very unfamiliar with this. It was during that time this song was absolutely prohibited and banned 
from being spoken of or recited. You know, Mary, for most people, is almost like a silent figure in Christmas. We're familiar. We see her in portrayed nativity scenes, right? Meek and mild, treasuring things in her heart. But do you know that Mary has a powerful story? In fact, the longest um, set of words spoken by a woman in the New Testament are actually spoken by Mary in the text we're going to look at today. But Mary remains a silent figure until you see her heart of humility and hear her faith in God. It's interesting, D.L. Mayfield, December 20th, 2018, writing for the Washington Post, did an article referencing um, this particular text and how it's kind of played out in modern-day history. She actually did a survey on Twitter, and she found this by asking 1,100 evangelical Christians their understanding of this text. This is rather surprising. 28% said that they had never even heard the title Magnificat. They didn't actually even know what that was and had never heard it. These are people that believe that they're born-again believers. They love God, they love the scriptures, and they actually never even heard of this. They didn't even know what she was talking about. Another 43% said their churches had never discussed it. That's a lot. She found that 21% said they had just encountered it maybe just a few times, and only 8% said that they had read it every year. Friends, if you're here today and you really want to have and experience God's joy, the joy that he has given this world, friends, you're going to have to have a true heart of humility. And that's what you find put on full display in this text. Humility before God is the key to experiencing his joy in the world. If you really want God's joy, it's going to come from the fertile soil of a heart that is humble before him. So how do we do this? What does humility of a heart really look like? For me, I really want joy in Christ. Joy is not found in your circumstances because life circumstances aren't always good. That's, they're not always good in my life. Certainly not the case right at this present time. Joy is not found in our circumstances. Joy is found in Christ. So what does humility of heart really look like? If you really want joy, let me tell you, this text will reveal how we find it. First of all, humility of heart looks like this. When you see your need for a Savior. Look what Mary says, chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. My soul exalts the Lord. One of the things you need to know about worship is that worship engages fully the mind and the heart. So often what gets passed today of, in worship, especially in, in modern-day churches, it's all about just kind of working people up into an emotion. And so you're going to do everything you can just to try to have people have an emotional experience. We really don't want you thinking necessarily about the words. We just want you to have an experience. And if you have some sort of good feeling that comes over you, you call that worship. But biblically speaking, worship is engaging fully the mind and having the heart. It's truth welded with your soul. 
that leads to an expression of devotion and trust in God and his faithfulness. And that's what she's doing. It's kind of like she, her heart is like an orchestra. And all of the instruments, her heart and her mind, are bringing about this great crescendo of actual worship to God. And that's why she says, my soul exalts the Lord. Uh, and then she goes on to say that my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. You need to understand that if you think that just giving lip service to God, singing or saying the right words is really all that matters to God and your heart's not in it, one of God's great rebukes to the nation of Israel, specifically even to Jerusalem and the people that were gathering for worship, is that they were doing a lot of saying the right thing, but their heart was far from God. In fact, you find in Isaiah chapter 29, God brings this rebuke. In verse 13, he says, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. If you think it's all about rituals, routines, saying the right words, and just kind of going through the motions, you're singing the song, but at the same time, you're actually working on the grocery list because it doesn't really matter to you. You may call it worship, but it is not. God knows the heart. In fact, Jesus said, John chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit, heart, and truth. That's true worship. And that's what we have Mary doing here. My soul exalts the Lord. And do you see that in verse 47? And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. You might want to underline that. Because for Mary, this is where worship really begins. When you see that God meets our greatest need by providing salvation and redemption for our sins. Far from Mary seeing herself as immaculate and sinless or some sort of co-redemptrix or the queen of heaven, no, she sees herself as we all are, sinners in need of a savior. And for me personally, this is where worship really began. Before placing my faith in Christ, I was self-centered. It was pretty much all about me. And I'm trying to do my own life in my own way. But once I started to realize the implications of missing the mark, we're realizing that I've been actually created by God, for God, to know God and to enjoy him. The wages of sin is death, separation. That explained my spiritual condition, separated from God. And when I fully understood the fact that I'm separated from God, then I finally understood the word Savior. Christ came to die, to pay the penalty for my sin, to save me from myself and save me from my sin. And that's where worship began in my life. And the same is true for you. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, you're not really a worshiper of him because you lack humility before God. You're not bowed down before him. You're trying to work God into your agenda. Worship begins with humility before God. You see, genuine relationship with God begins with humility. And what does that look like? You see your need for a savior. But second of all, humility looks like this. You see yourself 
as a servant. Look at verse 48. Mary goes on to say, For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. You see that? He has regard for the humble state. Now, certainly you'd like, well, yeah, Mary's, she's young, 13, 14. She's poor. She lives in Nazareth. That's just a know-nothing village in the middle of nowhere in the northern part of Israel, in Galilee of the Gentiles of all places. Yeah, she's humble. She comes from humble means. But when Mary says that she, she is humble, that God regards her humble state, it's really speaking far more than just her physical conditions. It speaks of the position of her heart, a heart of humility. It speaks of her spiritual character. She already sung that I need God as my Savior. Now she's expressing that God is near because of the humility of her heart. He says he has regard for the humble state of his, there it is, bond slave. Do you see that? For behold, from, all, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Bondservant. Mary sees herself as a servant of God. And the only way that'll ever happen in her life or in our life is if we come to a place of humility and see ourselves as a Savior-centered servant. Do you want genuine Christianity, true relationship with God? You've got to take the position of a servant, as a slave. Have you noticed in the New Testament how often, like for instance, the Apostle Paul identifies Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. All of his New Testament letters begin that way. She is the very first person that identifies herself as a servant of God. And she has set the pattern for all of us. True Christians see themselves as recipients of great grace because of Christ and see themselves as servants of the Lord. Try this. If you really want to experience God's joy in this life, see yourself as a Savior-centered servant. Now, some of you have been doing this for years. That's why you have such great joy in your life. But if you're here today and say, I'm a Christian, but I, I need more of the joy that we've been singing about, do this this week. See yourself as a Savior-centered servant with and in your family. You're going to have a lot of opportunity to serve. You're not going to feel like it at different times. You're going to even be tired and like, uh, I just wish all these family members would just go away or something like that. But if you do this, if you see yourself as a Savior-centered servant, you ask God for that kind of humility, you will engage, and what used to be a burden or a problem or a pain in the neck, all of a sudden, it's an opportunity to worship, an opportunity to serve. Try this on your job. Instead of going with the entitlement, uh, I deserve this kind of mentality, go as one who is a Savior-centered servant and see how you see things so very differently and the work that you're doing. One of the reasons our church thrives is because so many people in our church see themselves as Savior-centered servants. You see it all the way around. I just was by the, the children's area. We're going to be doing all these food boxes. I see all these people setting up. Do you see that there is joy? They're not like, oh, I'm serving God, and it's just miserable. I'm a servant. It's not. 
There's joy. Where does that come from? A heart of humility. So see yourself as a Savior-centered servant. A willingness to serve leads to a joyful heart. You see, that's what we're seeing here from Mary and her song. What does humility of heart look like? It looks like when you see your need for a Savior and you see yourself as a servant. But notice then what she expands upon. Humility of heart looks like this. When you see your strength and your security in his sovereignty. You know, when we think back about this past year, what a year this has been. I mean, just the the perils of the pandemic that we've been living in and we're experiencing. The economic havoc. Look at the racial tensions that are just exploding in our country. Far from progress, we have so much room for growth. Look at the economic fallout and the hardships people are going through. If you kind of take a look at uh, the moral unraveling of our society, it's referred to, and I'm sure you've heard of this, it's the moral revolution. But, but I'll tell you, from all that I'm reading about the moral revolution, it is a moral revolt against God. That's what this is. We don't want you, and we most certainly don't want your standards or what you have to say about life, relationships, humanity, and institutions. Absolutely not. We'll redefine them and do it our own way. Thank you very much. You look at the prevalence of abortion in our land, the idea that, you know what, it's still, we're just fine still killing babies even if they're in the mother's womb. Where do you find strength, courage, boldness, It's not in your circumstances. It's most certainly not in government. It is in God. His strength, his security, resting in his sovereignty. And that's what Mary is singing about. Look at verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. What she's doing here is she's talking about that God is the one who protects his children. His name is holy. He is set apart from all else, all others. He is absolutely holy. Our hope, our joy, our strength, our courage, it's fixed and focused on him. Look at verse 50. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. God's compassion, his mercy... Who's it upon? Those who hold God in reverential awe. You respect him. You respect his word. There's a fear like, I don't want to sin. I I take God seriously. He's not an option. He's not just a Sunday morning feeling for me. He's most certainly not a celestial Santa Claus. I take God seriously. I fear him. I have a reverential awe for him. Notice what Mary is singing His mercy is upon generation after generation, those who have gone before us. That is the story of those who have gathered here this morning. It's upon those who fear him. They have a reverential awe for him. And then look at verse 51. And he has done mighty deeds with his arm, and he has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. In Jewish worship, one of the things they did is they'd recite God's character they had good theology. They, they, they talked about who God is and his nature and his characteristics, love, joy, mercy, sovereignty. But one of the other things that featured strongly in the worship of Yahweh and the people of Israel 
is that they would recite God's past faithfulness on a regular basis of how God had been faithful to them as a nation. And when you and I get in the pattern of rehearsing God's character and reciting his faithfulness to his people and even to our own lives personally, when we think about, look how faithful God has been, you know what that leads? To profound worship. Because it comes from a heart of humility, and that's what Mary is doing. She is reciting and thinking back to God's mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. Now, don't get the idea that, well, I didn't know that God had an arm, because he does not. God is spirit, right? John 4, 24. This is anthropomorphic language, where God uses language like to, that speaks of the imagery like of a man, but speaking of an arm as strength. God has power. It's a figure description of God's powerful acts. And what she's saying is God has power to actually, like he says here, to scatter those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. Perhaps Mary is thinking of Pharaoh and his arrogance toward God and toward God's people. And you remember how God addressed Pharaoh's arrogance? God gave Pharaoh plenty of opportunity, all sorts of opportunity to listen to him and heed him. But Pharaoh wouldn't have it. And you know what happened? He faced the destruction of his army and he faced even devastation in his own life personally. Perhaps when Mary is seeing this, when he's recounting God's faithfulness, how he is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What she might be thinking about is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. You remember the king of Babylon? He was like, you know what? I am the empire ruler. I have got it all. Even Daniel said, you know what? You might want to tone it down because you got the wrong idea of who God is. God can humble you, and he's given you a warning. But you know what? Nebuchadnezzar was so full of himself that one day, you know, he's kind of walking around like, look at this, man, Babylon the Great, it's all mine. I did this. And it was at that point that God actually brought judgment to Nebuchadnezzar and for seven years, he resided in his, one of his own state parks. In fact, he even kind of started looking like an animal, and he's eating grass. And for seven years, he lived that kind of existence. He, God literally brought humility to him. He deposed him from his royal throne. All glory was taken away from him. That's what Daniel said. But at the end of that time, God allowed reason to return to Nebuchadnezzar. And do you remember the testimony that he gave? And he gave it in the Aramaic language, which was the trade language of the actual empire. And this is how he concluded it. Nebuchadnezzar made this statement. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. He is. One of the great transformational truths of the Bible, found in the Old Testament, recorded twice in the New Testament, you like you find it in James chapter 4, verse 6. It says, and he gives a greater grace. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Are you familiar with it? God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you are here and you got the entitlement mentality, you're self-absorbed, it's all about you, you are walking in your pride and your arrogance, 
I want you to know God is opposed to the proud. He will give grace to the humble. And he has a way of bringing humbleness and brokenness in life. I've experienced this firsthand. Just kind of looking around here, there are plenty of you that have said, I know what this is like. God had to bring me down to a place where it's humility before him. And that's what Mary is saying. She is simply once again recounting the reality that he has done mighty deeds. He is... He has done it with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their thoughts of their heart. In verse 52, and he has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. There's our word again. Do you see that? His mighty deeds. He's done it. And so she goes on to continue in this great song about God's strength and the security found in his sovereignty. Look at verse 53. And he has filled the hungry with good things, quoting from Psalm 107, and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has filled the hungry, not just the physically hungry, but the spiritually hungry. Do you really want relationship with God? Do you want a profound sense of purpose and peace? Do you want joy? Are you hungry for it? If you're hungry for it, God is the one who satisfies the hungry. He fills you, and that's exactly what he does. But if you're rich, not necessarily talking about financially rich, but what happens when we have financial wealth? It's so easy. Wealth is such an alluring idol, and it calls and beckons you and says, hey, you find your sense of security and well-being in your wealth, and it draws your heart away from God. If that's your case, you go away empty-handed. Because it requires humility. And you see, Mary's hope is not in government being her savior. Mary's hope is in God, her savior, the very one that she's carrying in her womb. I'll tell you what, how profound is that? And so she goes on to say, saying, verse 54, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of, of his mercy. The idea of Israel as God's servant, especially emphasized in the, the book Isaiah, where Israel was to demonstrate what it means to know God, to actually be what it looks like to serve him, to follow him from the heart. That's what she's saying. She's saying, he has given help to Israel's servant in remembrance of his mercy. That is a powerful statement because what she's saying is that God remembers his promises. He is a promise maker, and he's a promise keeper. And that's why she ends this song in verse 55 in this way. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. You see, Mary sees herself within the history of how God has been working in his people. And she references all the way back to Abraham. Do you know that God made a promise to Abraham? You find it in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. He said, through your family line, through Abraham's family line, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And how is that possible? Because through the family line of Abraham, which also then goes through David, comes this promised one who will be Jesus the Messiah. The promised one is in this new covenant 
that has been clarified by Jesus, and that's through his death. That's why he was born. He was born to die, to pay the penalty for sins, that all who believe in him can have real relationship with God. Indeed, the promises of life, forgiveness, eternal relationship with God are all fixed and focused on Jesus. And what Mary is saying, do you see how bold, do you see how brilliant this is? She sees that the promises given all the way back to Abraham are being fulfilled as she looks back to the quarter of time and she sees at this present time, he's fulfilling it because this baby that I'm carrying, this is Emmanuel, God with us. And I also want you to see how deeply personal this is for Mary. This isn't like, well, this is just a great story. She sees it personally for me, even like in verse 49. God has done great things for me. And that's where wonder, awe, and worship comes from. If you think Christianity is like kind of like signing up at the gym, you know? Like all you need to do is like you go in, you kind of pay a fee, and you get the benefits of being in a gym. Or if you think that uh, indeed that Christianity is just like a living well program, that really God wants you to have your best life. And that's really what is basically being presented in so much of evangelical Christianity today. That God is really just here to help you have a nice life. And he's, he'll, he'll be really helpful. Actually, or the, the idea that you're going to have some sort of barter agreement that you're going to work it out with God, that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is absolute humility before God, a surrender to him. And it's in this position of humility and surrender that we indeed find that he is our savior. We see ourselves as a savior-centered servant, And we find our strength and security in his sovereignty. That's what humility of heart looks like. Well, for Mary, verse 56, Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. So Mary had made this trek to visit Elizabeth. Elizabeth is six months along. Three months later, what would happen? She would give birth to that baby. That baby's name has been given by Gabriel from God, he is to be named John. You know him as John the Baptist. And for three months, Mary experienced the power of having a personal mentor. Elizabeth, 70 or 80, a godly woman. She's actually referred to as a righteous woman, meaning she feared God. It, wasn't, it doesn't mean that she was perfect, but that she walked with God. She had depth. She had strength. You know, some of life's circumstances, like in her case, being barren was a difficult situation. That didn't make her bitter. That made her deep. That's what God does. And so what Elizabeth does is she pours into young Mary. There's only one person on this planet that is going to be able to understand Mary and really encourage her and give her the care and the support and the affirmation and community she needs, and that is Elizabeth. Elizabeth and Mary. And Mary takes it all in. You know, that's how God works. When life doesn't work the way we think it should, perhaps there's some great surprise. You and I are not to go it alone. God always has his people to encourage us, to strengthen us, if we'll seek them out, even like Mary. And then, do you notice, it's almost like no big deal, but it's a huge deal. Verse 56, it said Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. She's making another journey, this time back home. And you're like, oh, isn't that sweet? 
Nothing like going home. This is a homecoming unlike any other. I want you to think about it. Mary's coming back three months pregnant. She's coming back, and she's got to face Joseph and tell him. She's coming back to her parents. She's still living with her parents. She's at home. How do you think that's going to fly when she's three months pregnant? She's got siblings, perhaps. She certainly has friends. She lives in a tight-knit community. If you've ever lived in a small town, everybody knows everybody's business, right? I mean, you can't even go to the store without everybody noticing. That's just how it works. Everybody's going to know. And every step that she makes going back home, she's thinking of the hardships it's going to take. Who's going to believe her story that God did this? She's preparing every step of the way for abuse, for slander, for ridicule, to be maligned, to be judged, to be scoffed at, to be mocked. She's going to face true pain. And yet she can do so with joy because she knows the truth and she has humility of heart before God. And this is her song of worship. You know, Mary is the first person to accept Jesus on his terms no matter what the cost. And that's the only way you and I come to Jesus. Not like, well, I'm going to trust you, but you've got to do all these things for me, and it better not be hard, or I'm out of here. You've missed it. You don't have humility of heart. You don't even know who you're dealing with. She goes, I am your servant, no matter the cost. But my joy is not in my circumstances. It's in God, my Savior, in Jesus. So where are you on life's journey? We see Mary, but where are you? Honestly, are you wandering? Are you just kind of out there? Are you just kind of lost in life? Are you just kind of going with the flow of an ever-changing culture and its values? Does the TV and media and what you see by popular people, does that pretty much govern your direction in life? Are you self-sufficient and self-absorbed? If you are, I... I can relate to you. I want you to know, I know that you have a deep gnawing sense in your life that this isn't right. You don't really have peace. There is brokenness inside. You know that you don't know God, and there is a great tension. You feel it. This Christmas, right now, you might find yourself wandering. Or do you find yourself on the journey of this life where Mary is, filled with wonder, a willingness to serve and worship. You see, when we humble ourselves before God, Mary's song becomes our song. And what an awesome song this is. You see, the journey to spiritual maturity requires humility before God. Humility is what brings us to a place where we trust Jesus is our Savior from sin. But it is humility that allows us to move forward. We're trusting God. We see that we've got brokenness in our lives. We have issues. We have a tendency to our pride and arrogance and running over people. We're self-centered. But it's through humility that God brings growth in our life. He does it through discipleship relationships. He does it through the encounter of his word. And he does it through the working of his Holy Spirit. So let's not let Mary be silent anymore. This year, you're going to see nativity scenes and you're going to see Mary. And she's going to look meek and mild. She has been basically silent 
but she is silent no more. Let her song, her faith, and her Savior be your joy this Christmas. You see, humility before God is the key to experiencing his joy in this world. Let's pray. Lord,